Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. This is God's word. Paul writes, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they may, might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness And the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, again, we thank you that you have given us the words of life, words that if we believe and trust in you, we might live forever in your peace and in the rest that is ours in Christ. And so, Father, I ask now that your Holy Spirit would attend to the proclamation of your word, that you would speak into the hearts of your believers those who know you, those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world, so that you might strengthen their faith, that you might build them up and encourage them in the gospel. And for those that would be here who know you not, that you would open their hearts to the truth, that you would convince them of their need to come in repentance and faith to Christ so that they might know you for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While all sin is certainly damaging and destructive, the sin of pride seems to be especially deadly. 
Satan himself, of course, displayed pride as a sin when he led the host of heaven to rebel against God. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, manifested that sin of pride when they desired to be like God and so ate of that forbidden fruit. A proud heart, indeed, is the source of many of our sorrows and struggles in this world. Conflict in relationships usually has a root of pride from which it flows. People lie for the sake of their pride. People act as though they are victims because of their pride. People hate others because of their pride. People commit sexual immorality because of their pride and even celebrate it as we do in the month of June in our culture. And many times we fail to see the sin in our own heart, or even deal with that sin that we struggle with because of our pride. We we don't seek the help and the comfort and the care of other believers because of our pride. It is a deadly poison. It weakens and corrodes everything it touches and affects. In fact, the book of Proverbs wisely tells us in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So what is it that makes pride so heinous, so destructive? Well, it is simply this, and that it twists all of God's goodness, all of his grace, and to being about our glory rather than God's glory. And grace then because becomes something that we begin to feel we have somehow deserved or earned rather than something God has gifted to us. Paul understood this danger well. And that is why he writes the way he does here in our text this morning in the middle of Romans 11. Here he is calling us as God's people, as believers, to a humble faith. A humble faith that trusts God's undeserved kindness towards us, which leads us then to fear the Lord rather than boasting in ourselves. You see, God's grace is to be the cause of our boasting in the Lord for what He has done rather than the boasting in ourselves. Humble faith understands that the gospel is bigger than you. And so Paul shows us then two truths that we need to understand before he gets to his instructions on how to fight the sin of pride in our lives. These two truths show us that the gospel really is bigger than us, that it really is about the glory of God rather than our own glory. And the first of those truths is in verse 11 through 12, and that is this, God's purpose for Israel's stumbling was to graciously extend his kingdom to all peoples. God's purpose in Israel's stumbling and unbelief was to graciously extend his kingdom to all peoples, including us. So in the first 10 verses of Romans 11, as we saw last week, God has not abandoned his people. His rejection of Israel was not a complete rejection because he always saves a remnant for himself. And beginning in verse 11, we see now that the rejection of Israel as an ethnic people was not final. Though Israel has stumbled, that is not the final chapter in their story. 
according to God's redemptive plans of the world. So Paul writes in verse 11, So I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So once again, Paul answers a question that is being asked based on what he has been saying with a very strong negative. He wants us to understand the, the purpose of Israel stumbling And that that purpose was, in fact, not that they would utterly be destroyed, but that that falling had another design, another end to it, another purpose. And the first part of that purpose is simply this. It is the salvation of the Gentile peoples of the world. Through Israel's trespass, which is to say their unbelief, their rejection of Christ Jesus as the Redeemer, by that trespass, salvation has come to the Gentile peoples of the world. And who are the Gentiles? Well, it's you and I. It's everyone that is not a Jew. And that means that Israel's sinful rejection of God's grace in Christ has led to our reception of his grace in Jesus. Jesus declared that this very thing would come to pass. Quoting from Psalm 118, Jesus said, the stone that the believers rejected has become the cornerstone. He's speaking of himself, interpreting from Psalm 118. He says, this was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And then he says, therefore, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, speaking to the Jews, and given to a people producing its fruits. So in rejecting Jesus, which was Israel's great stumble, their great trespass, the kingdom of God was taken away from them and given to a people outside of Israel. But as wondrous as it is that God's kingdom would be opened now to the entire world so that every tribe, tongue, and nation might come to faith, and as wonderful as the salvation of the Gentile peoples is, their salvation serves another purpose as well. And that is the salvation of Israel. The salvation of the people who have rejected Christ. And so Israel stumbles, and that results in the salvation of God coming upon the Gentiles. And the salvation of God coming upon the Gentiles causes Israel to be jealous, which in turn turns them back to the one they rejected. So Paul again explains in verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles, which in turn makes Israel jealous. And that jealousy comes from seeing God's covenant blessing being poured out upon the nations. And so Israel, who longs for that blessing, returns to its very source, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what a paradox, because in Israel's unbelief, ultimately comes their restoration to faith. The stumbling of the Jews leads to their feet being placed on the rock of salvation who is Christ the Lord. A rebound, a rebound of God's grace is a way to picture this. God's grace came to Israel in Christ Jesus in that as the mediator of his covenant of grace. And Israel as a nation rejects Jesus 
And the grace of God rebounds back upon the Gentiles of the world. And then many Israelites, seeing this, in turn, return to the righteousness that is theirs through faith in Christ alone. A biblical illustration of this happening can be seen in the events of Pentecost. So Pentecost, what does it follow? It follows, well, ultimately, the ultimate rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the, the, the crucifixion. And Jesus, of course, rose, conquering the grave, and he ascended to rule and reign as sovereign king over his kingdom forever. And right before Jesus' ascension, Jesus' disciples asked him, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? So they're still looking for this kingdom of God. And his response was that that is a time not for you to know, but is fixed in the Father's timing. And indeed, we know that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has established his kingdom. Of course, it is not complete. It will be finalized when he returns. But he has established it. As Jesus responds to his disciples' question, he says to them, The Father will send you the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because the coming of the Spirit, as prophesied in the Old Testament, was a symbol that the kingdom had come. So he says, This Father will send you the Holy Spirit, and He will empower you to do what? To be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. All nations to hear the good news of the gospel. That is a promise of the kingdom. And so then Jesus, not long after that, ascends in clouds of glory to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is given, just as Jesus said. And so Peter goes out on that day of Pentecost, and he begins to preach a sermon. And he calls all who will hear it to faith and repentance in Christ. And by God's power... People from nations from all over the world hear that message and believe. And we're told there in Acts that 3,000 were saved that day and added to the church. And throughout the book of Acts, what else do we see? We see Jews coming to faith as well. Israel rejected Jesus and crucified him. The people from other nations living in in Jerusalem heard the gospel of grace and were saved. And many Jews, jealous for that same blessing of God, repent and come to faith in Christ. And the work of God, the building of his kingdom, continues. And so God's purpose in Israel's stumbling was not so that they would fall to ultimate ruin, but so that his kingdom might graciously abound. A kingdom made of people from all over this world, both Jew and Gentile, united together in Christ Jesus, their Lord and King. So Paul describes this in verse 12. He says, If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. And riches for the world or riches for the Gentiles is an expression that we see in Old Testament prophecy to describe the wealth of the nations, that being the nations themselves, flowing into Israel to know Israel's God. That's the kingdom. That's spiritual Israel. 
That's the fulfillment of God's covenant promise, which we as the church are part of. That's the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping before the throne of God that John sees in his vision in the book of Revelation. That's you and me if we are indeed united to Jesus by faith. And so Paul is saying is that this kingdom that is already happening is great and it is glorious because God is building it. And if it is happening now, how much greater will it be with Israel's, he says, full inclusion? Now, he doesn't mean by full inclusion, that every single Jew will be saved. What he means by that is the full number of all who will come to faith in Christ, the elect, those who will believe. That complete number that God has set of those whom he has chosen to be part of his people, when that number is complete, how much greater will God's kingdom be? Because that is at that time, when Christ our Lord will return and the kingdom will be finalized. So God's purpose then with Israel's stumbling was to graciously expand his kingdom to both Jews and Gentiles. That is the first truth that Paul wants us to understand so that we might have a humble faith and so overcome the pride that so easily tempts us. You see, that truth that God is building his kingdom with people from all over the world and that he used a terrible thing, Israel's rejection of Christ, their stumbling, their falling, to bring about the the completion of that kingdom, that truth takes away all grounds for pride. I mean, how can we think that the gospel is all about us when really it's about the kingdom of God and his glory The thing with spiritual pride, when we begin to think that we really are something, is that it kills mission. It really does. When we see ourselves as being better than others because we are blessed by God's grace, we begin to turn inward as a people, as a church. Paul says this in verses 13 and 15. He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I am an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? See what he's saying here? He's saying, I am magnifying my ministry... What is Paul's ministry? He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's saying, I make much of, that's what it is to magnify. I make much of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles so that it would stir some of the Jews up to jealousy and they would be saved. In other words, my ministry of proclaiming the gospel is building that kingdom of God. And if their rejection... Israel's rejection, their stumbling, their turning away from Christ resulted in reconciliation for the world. How much more will their acceptance when they come in faith and repentance to Christ be but life from the dead, the renewal of all things, the restoration that God has promised, the redemption of all of this world back to God as He has purposed and designed it to be. Death will be no more 
and life will be everlasting. And so Paul says, for that reason, I'm going to make a big deal about the gospel, not because of me, but because of what God is doing when it is proclaimed. And so as Paul then make much of the gospel rather than making much of yourself, as a believer, look to what God is doing in this world. It's easy to look at a town, especially like Ann Arbor, with an us versus them mentality or paradigm. Because that's what our pride wants. It wants us to be those righteous Christians and you to be those dirty pagans. But let us make much of the gospel then and look at Ann Arbor as a place where the gospel must be magnified for the salvation of the Gentiles and the jealousy of Israel, so that God's kingdom might grow. That's the first truth Paul wants us to understand, that God allowed Israel to stumble, and so wrote that in his plan of redemption to bring about his glorious kingdom. And the second truth that we need to understand to have a humble faith is this, is that the roots roots of our redemption are deep. So Paul says in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He uses two metaphors here to explain God's redeeming purposes. First, he speaks of first fruits. Now, it's of course a word we don't use regularly in our uh, everyday speech, first fruits were part of the harvest. They were the first part of the harvest. And it could be a crop, it could be uh, animal production. First fruits was even used at times to refer to the firstborn son in a family. The first fruits were the first part considered to be the best part of a crop or herd, which were to be offered up to the Lord in worship of him. In Numbers 15, we see God's requirement to uh, the Israelites to bring to him the first fruits that he gave them. And the principle was they were then dedicating or consecrating the first part of what God had given them to him, to his service, setting it apart for the Lord, thus putting God first in every area of their life. The second metaphor we see here, and it's one that develops more deeply as we continue on into Romans 11, is that of a root and branches. Now, this is one we certainly can understand. And healthy branches exist because the root is healthy. From the root, the, the rest of a plant receives its nourishment. But if the root of a plant is disease, then its leaves will wither and die, and the branches will fall off. Now, Paul says here that if the first fruits are holy, then the entire crop from which it came must be holy as well. And if the root of the tree is holy, then the branches of that tree must be holy as well. And to be holy is to be consecrated, to be set apart, dedicated covenantally to God. That was the whole point of the law regarding first fruits in Numbers. And so the point of the metaphors then is to show that this root, this very source of faith, which results in belonging to God's people, is grounded in God's covenant 
grace. The roots or the first fruits that are spoken of here are the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why them? Well, because to them, God laid out the promise of his covenant of grace that he would make them into a great nation or a great kingdom. And it is through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. How? By being put into that kingdom by God's grace. Those patriarchs were set apart from, by God just like the first fruits of a harvest. And they were chosen by him as a foundation of faith for the people of God to be part of this kingdom that God would grow, that he would build for himself. That choice made according to his sovereign pleasure is enshrined in his perpetual or ongoing covenant. And that means that Israel, who came from the patriarchs, would know the blessing of God's grace. Not all of them, of course. The Bible does make that clear. But many of them would be saved. And not only Israel but people from the Gentile nations as well. And so Paul says in Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's what he's getting at here in Romans eleven sixteen. That very truth, that the root is holy, dedicated to God, so all the branches, both Jew and Gentile, united to God's grace, according to his covenant, belong to him forever. In other words, redemption, your redemption, is bigger than just your personal salvation. Again, salvation isn't all about you. It's about God's glory. And that is a good thing. Because it means that his full promises are being fulfilled in this world. That everything that is wrong will be made right again by the grace of God. Understanding this truth puts all that God does for you in blessing you and making you his own into the bigger picture of his redeeming designs. And seeing that, understanding that, how we fit into this great story of redemption again removes any grounds for pride in our heart. God didn't have to include you in this kingdom that he is building, but he did. And the roots of that inclusion are dug down deep into the soil of his covenantal love and mercy. They didn't start with you or your faith. They start in his grace. They start in his covenantal love. And so we ought not to think then that as Christians, we are special because of who we are, but we should see the full goodness of God in his mercy to include us in his people. We must understand that God's purpose in Israel stumbling then was to graciously expand his kingdom of all peoples. And secondly, we must understand that the roots of our faith are deep, going back into the beginning of God's covenant of grace. And now we ask the question then, how does that help us then 
to deal with this sin of pride that so easily creeps into our hearts. They help us, because as we've been seeing here, they humble us. They put us where we belong as God's people and God where he deserves as our Lord and Master and Creator. When we understand God's purpose in Israel's stumbling and understand that our roots of our salvation, our redemption, are deep, we begin to learn what Paul wants us to do in verses 17 through 24. And it is simply this. It is to fight pride with faith and with fear. Paul continues to develop that metaphor of the root and branches beginning in verse 17. He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. So, of course, he continues this picture of horticulture and farming in his day. And he wants us to see a contrast between the broken branches, the ones that were pruned off, and the branches that are grafted in. And the broken branches, of course, represent ethnic Israel, who had been pruned away or cast off from the root. The root, again, is the patriarchs, but particularly the fact that they represent the covenant promises of God and his purposes in that covenant. And so being broken off or pruned from the root, Israel has been broken off from that covenantal heritage. Now, Paul has in mind the great mass of Israel, obviously not the believing remnant, but the extent of that pruning isn't the point. Paul simply wants us to uh, to remind Gentile believers what happened to Israel. They were broken. They were pruned off from that covenantal grace of God, from the root. And the wild olive branches represent the Gentile peoples of the world. They are united. They are grafted in to that root by God's grace to be part of his people. And they are united to that root through who? Through Christ Jesus. It is Christ who fulfills all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does Jesus say then in John 15? He says, I am the vine. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See that? The branches depend on the root to sustain them. That's what Paul wants us to understand here. The root nourishes and provides life to the branches. And so Paul says, don't be arrogant then. Do not be full of pride, somehow thinking that you did something to be worthy of being grafted into this root. You need to be united to Christ. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches, the ones that were pruned off. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. He also emphasizes this idea of the wild olive branch and the natural olive branch. 
So he's saying that you Gentiles, you are wild. You were not part of this covenant that I made with my people. They were naturally part of it. And they rejected Christ. And for their unbelief, they were pruned away. But you have been joined in. That is not natural. And so the root supports you and it gives you life. Thus, don't be arrogant. Don't think that you are more spiritual than others just because you have been grafted into this root of God's covenant grace. But walk, he says, in a humble faith. Verse 20, he says it like this. Stand fast through faith. Keep on trusting in what Jesus has done for you, implanting in you into God's kingdom. And so fight then the temptation of pride with faith in the gospel. Boasting and arrogance and pride and presumptuous confidence cannot exist with continual faith that humbly trusts Jesus and praises the Father and relies on the Spirit. And so Paul says, consider then, consider the kindness of God to you. Meditate upon it regularly. See it in His Word. Hear it proclaimed. Taste of it at His table. That's what it means to continue in God's kindness. To stand fast in faith. That is humble faith. But not only does that faith help you fight the sin of pride in your life, Paul says also fear does. Fear comes from considering God's severity. That is to say, His holy wrath. Wrath that was seen in His judgment against Israel as a nation with the natural branches being pruned off. So He says in verse 19, Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Do not become proud, but fear. And fear here isn't just being scared of something like heights or small places, roller coasters, or spiders. Um, because spiders really are scary. No, fear here is an awe. It is a reverence. It is a trembling respect. It's the kind of fear that actually leads to safety because you understand how grave a danger really is. It's that kind of fear that makes you look both ways before you cross the street. Why? Because you know it's dangerous to step out into the street without looking. It's the kind of fear... That if you're working on the roof of a house or climbing up a ladder, it makes you be cautious. Or to walk across an icy parking lot with care and concern because you have fear of falling. You don't want to hurt yourself. That's the idea. A respect. A reverence. And in this case, it is a reverence of the power and the wrath and the holiness and the judgment of God. It sees that God did not spare Israel as a nation whom He had chosen and raised up, but He cut them off because of their arrogant unbelief. And so this fear then understands that God can do the same if you and your pride think that God was merciful to you because you somehow earned that mercy. So Paul says, note then both the kindness 
and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. A holy fear of God helps us to fight against pride in our life. But notice something important here in Paul's words. He actually doesn't separate faith and fear. He says, note them both. Note both God's kindness and his severity. Have faith and fear of what God can do. In fact, he ends chapter 11 with truth regarding God's kindness. He says, even they, being Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? And the emphasis there is on the power of God. He has the power to cut off the natural branches, but he also has the power to restore them back into the root once again. He says, if they do not continue in unbelief. In other words, if they do come to Christ. He will and he does. For God's people are made of fallen sinners both Jew and Gentiles, who by God's grace have been made to believe in Christ's mercy and thus fear His wrath, but rest in His righteousness. And so God frees us from the pride of sin then through this humble faith that understands and trusts in His kindness. And He also frees us from pride when we see and fear His power and his judgment, and his wrath. So consider then, Paul says, God's kindness and his judgment together. And where is the one place where both God's kindness and severity come together in full display of his glory and in a beautiful harmony? It's in the cross. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. For there, it was there on that cross that justice and mercy fully met. Christ died in the place of sinners, which is a great mercy and undeserved kindness. And in dying in their place, what did he do? He bore the full wrath of God that they deserved. Israel's stumbling led to that happening which in turn graciously extended the promises of God's covenant to all the nations of the earth so that whoever believes in Christ would be made part of that kingdom forever. That is the root of your redemption if you are united to Jesus. And so then, stand fast in that faith and fear the Lord, and He will free you from the sin of pride. But not just pride. Every last sin with which you struggle, that is what Christ did on the cross where justice and mercy met, where the kindness and the severity of God were on full display. So look to the cross. Look to the cross. And any pride that you have in your heart will fall away. 
consider the kindness and the severity of your God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you even work through these things like Israel stumbling to bring about your great saving purposes. To call to yourself a people for your name in all the earth. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to be humble. Help us not to think so highly of ourselves that we have somehow earned this great blessing, but continue to remember that you brought us into your family purely by your good pleasure, your gracious mercy. And then, Father, fill us with the sense that we are to make much of the gospel. For it is in making much of the gospel that you continue to bring about this great mission, this great salvation that you have orchestrated and planned and designed in eternity past to have a people for your name from the Jews and the Gentiles, indeed, from all the nations of the earth. And one day, when Christ our King returns, we will stand before you and praise you for all eternity and that great Sabbath that never ends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.